Welcome to Scaling Up, the podcast for water treaters by water treaters, where we're scaling up on knowledge so we don't scale up our systems. Hi, folks. Trace Blackmore here, the host of Scaling Up. And today we are going to talk about sales. And I know all of us out there are salespeople, and our job is to go and sell what it is that we do. But if you really look at what it is and how it is that we do it and how we are managed and the systems in which we do those things, it has not changed since the dawn of time. But everything else has. If you look at, if we had a manufacturing facility, we are always looking for better machines and better policies and procedures. And how do we shorten the distance from point A to point B to make that more efficient, to make it easier on people? In manufacturing, they have Sig Sigma and all those other items where they make sure that if somebody's using, say, a hammer, they don't have to go and walk away and come back and get a hammer that they have all the tools they need right there in their location so they can concentrate on what their job is. You can pretty much apply that line of thinking to everywhere in business except for sales. Sales, we have done the exact same way for forever. That's what got my attention when Tim Fulton, my business coach, who's been on the show, came and we do what we call one-to-ones. And Tim looks at my business and, and he sees things that I can't see because I'm inside the fishbowl swimming around. So he's got the perspective that he can look from the outside and have a completely different perspective. And we were talking about how we do sales. And he said that he not only read this book, he's actually worked with Justin Roth Marsh, who's the author of the book I'm getting ready to tell you about. And he has redesigned the sales process. It's a, it's a really neat concept. And I've talked to several people that have worked with Justin and it works. So the book is called The Machine, A Radical Approach to the Design of the Sales Function. And really think about it. When was the last time you thought about how you did sales? Now, I'm not talking about techniques and things like that. I'm talking about how it's managed and who does what job. And are those really the right ways of doing that? Well, his book is really in two parts, and you all know that I really enjoy books that give me something to do and give me something to work on after I read them, and that's what his book does. So part one kind of proves this case. You know, this is what's going on with sales, and this is what has to happen because it's always happened. And then part two tells you how to break it apart and rebuild it. So I have had uh, of the opportunity to reach out to Justin, and he came on the show to interview about the book and specifically talk about some of the things that we just take for granted in sales and what we can do a little bit better. So I hope that you enjoy my interview with Justin Roth Marsh. My lab partner today is Justin Roth Marsh. And Justin, I got to tell you, I just finished reading your book, The Machine, and I am just amazed at how you took a totally different approach to how companies sell. I'm really excited about talking to you about that. But first off, how are you doing today? 
Hey, Trace, I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing very well. You have just a, a whole list of credentials, and I'm going to mess them up if I talk about them. So would you mind telling the Scaling Up Nation a little bit about yourself? Well, I guess I'm the author of The Machine. That's probably how most people come across me in the first instance. So The Machine is a book about the design of the sales function, how to build sales functions. I'm the founder of a company called Ballistics. I started Ballistics 22 years ago in Australia and moved to the US about 10 years ago when our US business sort of eclipsed the Australian businesses in size. I have been involved with a couple of, with one or two startups prior to Ballistics, but I, I I struggle to remember them because that was more than 22 years ago. <laughs> I have a, I don't have many more credentials than that. Maybe a driver's license a, and, a, and a, a diving permit, but that's about it. You're a scuba diver. You know what? I I was for a couple of weeks long enough to get, what do they call it? The deep, the, the underwater dive. There's a name for it. Uh, there, there's an open water certification. Open water there's water, deep. Yeah, open water certification. All but right. to be honest, it's not my favorite sport. I, I think the, the hassle to enjoyment ratio is out of whack. I'm, you know, my, my primary sports are um, tennis and gymnastics currently. Well, fair enough. Well, I got to say, and I mentioned this earlier, uh, when I was reading the book, I, I never thought about sales in the, in the way that you taught me to think about sales. But I think about everything else I do in business with how can I do it better and more efficient and get some, a better machine in there, improve the process. And that's the mindset that you took. So I was hoping that we could spend a little time talking about the traditional sales model, why you think that's not the way to do things now, and then what is a more effective way to do sales? Okay. So traditionally, sales is viewed as an activity. So if an organization wants sales, it goes looking for a person to perform that activity, and those people are called salespeople. And that's probably as sophisticated as most organizations get. If they need more sales, they get more salespeople. And salespeople operate autonomously. And in fact, salespeople operate like manufacturing folk probably operated about 100 years ago. Uh, they work autonomously. They get paid on a piece rate. In other words, they get paid commission. And I think in some contexts that model can work. But with most organizations we encounter, it simply doesn't work anymore. Sales is, uh, is too complex for that to be practical. You know, many of our clients, for, for many of our clients, the product that they're going to sell doesn't exist at the point at which the salesperson starts selling it. And, and I think the other, the other big thing to understand is that what we bring to the discussion is, is really division of labor. Uh, our whole approach is, a, is based around applying division of labor to the sales function, which means splitting it into a group of activities and allocating activities to folks who are best qualified to perform them. And the end result of that is that if we build a sales environment, salespeople do nothing but sell. So to be more concrete, if we're talking about an inside salesperson, they would have 20 plus meaningful conversations a day and do nothing else, no prospecting and no customer service tasks, no proposals, no order entry, nothing, just selling. Well, in the water treatment industry, it's the norm that there's one salesperson that handles an account and they're they're responsible for making the phone calls, for going out there and uh, finding the prospects, writing the proposal, doing every single aspect. So with for an industry that's so deeply entrenched with that's the way we do things, why should we change? How should we change? Well, you only need to change if you want to make more sales. Well, fair enough. All right. So... Why should you change? The reason you should change is because it's an incredibly inefficient way of operating. You know, salespeople, and not, and not only that, 
is it's not just that it's extremely inefficient. You need to recognize that the more efficient, the more inefficient your sales process is, the less you can afford to pay for salespeople, which means the average caliber of your salespeople is going to be lower than it otherwise could be. So it's efficiency is a good reason, but efficiency is isn't the only reason. I, I mean, if if I was to go and walk work in the in in that industry, I'm not sure it would be my first choice. But if I did go and work in that industry, I would want to be sure that I was doing nothing other than high, than high value activities. So I'd want to make sure that I spent my time selling, you know, and that would mean standing in boardrooms, pitching some sort of proposition. Best case, you know, worst case would be you know standing on the shop floor in a plant somewhere p- pitching a proposition. I would absolutely not be attracted to the industry if I had to do my own prospecting and generate my own proposals. And I'm sure that would be the, the case for a lot of professional salespeople. And, and of course, irrespective of my personal proclivities, I would be significantly more, anyone would be significantly more productive if they spent 100% of their time having you know, either face-to-face or telephone-based selling conversations rather than prospecting and doing customer service. And you, mm-hmm. you talked about salespeople owning their own accounts. That's just ludicrous. It makes no sense whatsoever. Because if a salesperson owns their accounts, over time, the size of their list of accounts grows to the point where they don't do any selling at all. I will be the first to tell you that uh, when I've had salespeople that worked for me and it did not work out, it was because they weren't able to do the things that they weren't really hired to do, which was sales. They, they weren't writing proposals right or they weren't able to prospect to get enough in there. So again, this is how we're taught to build sales departments. So what's the departure from that? How do we even start to do that? Well, I think some thinking isn't reading the books a good, a, a good start, but some basic thinking too. I, I, I mean, sit and watch, do a time and motion study on your salespeople and, and note down in 10 minute incre- increments what they do f- for an entire day. And then ask yourself, does it make sense to have one person performing that range of activities or would you increase activity? Is, uh, uh, would you increase performance if you split the activities up? So, I mean, the first thing that we would take away from salespeople is customer service. So they have no involvement whatsoever in transactions. So they don't generate quotes, they don't resolve customer issues, and they don't have anything to do with the processing of orders. And then the second thing that we would remove from salespeople is prospecting so that they can focus exclusively on selling. And there's two benefits you get from that. Obviously, salespeople get to be more productive, but also salespeople can become much easier to manage. If you're a supervisor and you have a room with 10 inside salespeople in it, uh, it's very easy to tell whether they're working or not if the only type of work they can possibly perform is talking to prospective customers on the telephone. If you uh, allow them to you know, perform the diver- diversity of tasks that a typical salesperson does, then they essentially become unmanageable. And of course, if you pay them commission, then that's unmanageable with a cherry on top and you've only got yourself to blame for that. That's a, that's a good point. So... What does the ideal sales department look like? Well, in a department that we would build, you would have a promotions. Well, the first thing you would do is have a a robust customer service team to ensure that salespeople had no reason whatsoever to have any involvement with processing transactions, generating quotes and resolving issues. The second thing that we would do is build a promotions team. The job of the promotions team is to top up salespeople's opportunity queues every day meaning that each morning when a salesperson arrives at work, they have exactly the same number of opportunities in queue that they had the the day before. And then once you have those two preconditions, 
the sales department should consist of a bunch of people who spend all day talking to prospective customers on the phone and a supervisor who makes sure that that's the case. You make it sound so simple. It is. So we're entrenched in such a, a, a the, the same way of doing things, but with that comes the same results that we're always getting. So again, easy for you to say. Well, this is a transition that manufacturing underwent 50 to 100 years ago, and the consequence of that transition are, are highly visible for all of us to see. So I think that the road ahead has already been paved for us. All we have to do is follow it. We, we, you know, it, it doesn't make sense to protest too much. People are going to, the people in the rest of the organization are going to think we're a bit daft. Fair enough. So one of the issues that I found as uh, trying to, to restructure our sales department is finding somebody that is able to do the inside sales part of the job. And how, how do you go about advising your clients to, to find the right person? What are, what are some of the, the things that we can do to make sure that we are getting the right people? Well, first, you need to recognize it's difficult because this is probably not a, a plum job. It's probably not the most in demand of, of jobs. So recognize it's difficult. Figure out how to make it more appealing. And of course, our method, what we're talking about here, does make it more appealing because, you know, the idea that the idea that you could work in the industry and sit on a basket of accounts and, and be basically a, a customer service rep with the added responsibility of, of somehow pulling sales out of a hat, it, it doesn't make it sound like a very appealing proposition. But if you say to somebody, look, all your sales opportunities are generated for you, all you have to do is the one thing that presumably you're really good at, it makes the job sound more appealing. And then if you say, well, we pay twice what our competitors pay, then it becomes even more appealing. Now, if you do the, if, if you do some investigation, I don't know what the numbers are in your industry, but I wouldn't mind betting that after they're done with account management, a typical salesperson in your industry only has a couple of true selling conversations a day, if that even. I wouldn't argue with that. So in the model we're suggesting, we're going from two a day to 20 a day. So that's a 10 times increase in the rate of work. Now, you can't expect a 10 times increase in sales because you would expect that the salespeople in the current model are certainly stumbling across some windfalls. And the volume of windfalls will be the same in the old model, but it will be an increase. I mean, if you increase the volume of work by 10 times, it's reasonable to expect that you could double the rate at which a single salesperson closes deals. So if you have to pay them 50% more, that's probably a reasonable deal. Now, if you're paying 50% above the market in the form of salary rather than base plus commission, I suspect you're going to have plenty of people who want to work for you. Well, you said the prerequisite to even get started with this new endeavor is to make sure that we had customer service shored up. How do we ensure that that's done? Well, let's start with a list of activities. So I've given you those. So that would be processing orders, resolving issues, and generating quotes. So first, make sure that you have folks on your customer service team who are capable of performing those three things. And then second, make sure that your customer service team is resourced so that even when you get slammed by the marketplace and maybe have one person off sick, you can still turn around all three of those activity types within reasonable lead times within the reasonable expectations of your customers. In, in more technical environments, you probably want to have a two-tiered customer service department. So, you know, frontline CSRs who are generalists and then specialists upstream from them. And that could include, you know, maybe an estimator. 
an engineer, applications engineer, de- depending on uh, how technical your work is. Uh, so the idea is all of the inbound, tra- all of the organization's inbound traffic goes to the customer service team. The customer service team triages it, does all the simple stuff themselves, creates tickets for everything, and pushes any complex tasks to a tier two specialist. So all of that stuff is removed from salespeople. And hence, they're more productive because they're only doing their productive activities. Yeah. So with a small company like like mine, we may not be able to fill all of the different seats. Is it possible for one person to do multiple seats? I don't think that would be the case. I think you probably would be able to fill the seats unless there's only three people in the company. How many in the company? Well, so so mine, we have six. Yeah. So... I'm not sure how many people you would need in customer service. I'm assuming if with six people, you're obviously not manufacturing. You're simply it's a buy sell business. Correct. Uh, water treatment industry is normally is is more more sales. Sometimes there's some production of some uh, water treatment chemicals programs. Uh huh. Uh huh. So I I would expect maybe you've got one person in logistics distribution. And maybe one person in accounts and a, and a couple of customer service reps and a few salespeople. It, it would be a stretch. You could probably outsource some roles, but you need to be very careful about getting people to share roles. I mean, the, our rule of thumb is only allow people to share roles if one of them is critical, one of them is optional, and if the person you're giving the roles to dislikes the one that's optional. And a perfect example of this idea at work is, is a bar. If you go into a bar and watch for a period of time, you know, the bar attendants, what you'll discover is that when they're busy, they're serving customers. And when they're not busy, they're polishing glasses. Now, the great thing about polishing glasses is that it gives bar, bar staff something to do. It adds some value because when the glasses are, glasses are cleaner, the bar looks better. But the other great thing about it is that bar attendants hate doing it, which means that whenever a customer walks up to the bar, they will drop their glasses and attend to the customer. If you gave them something they liked doing, then it would start to compete with their primary objective. So yes, you can double up on roles, but only if it meets those criteria, which means your ability to do so is fairly limited. So what are some of the biggest mistakes that you see some of your clients make after they've met with you and they try to put your program into play? A a big one, I think, would be would be trying without trial, trying. There's an expression that y- y- you guys use in the States. I wish I could remember what it is. It's where you kind of half do something. It's not nickel and diming, but it's an expression kind of like that. It means to, to half have a go at doing something. And we do see that's a problem. You know, people read the book and they find it intellectually stimulating and they think, well, by gosh, we should do this to our organization. But then when it comes down to it, it's just too hard. So what they end up doing is retaining the terminology, is, is, is using the terminology, but maintaining the status quo. That, that's, a, that's a big problem because obviously you're not achieving anything except a little bit of disruption. I, I think it's important to recognize that the, the approach that we are advocating for sales is absolutely chalk and cheese compared to standard practice. So if you go down this path, you want to be absolutely sure that this is what you want to do and you want to be pretty confident that you know what you're doing because you you want to fall on one path or the other. You don't want to fall in the undergrowth in the middle between the two. So what metrics should be attached to the sales department so we can know whether things are working properly, especially with trying this new philosophy or if we're heading towards a problem? 
Okay, so let, we've talked about three. If we take a typical sales department, we're essentially splitting it into three parts. We're splitting it into promotions, sorry, customer service, promotions, and sales. So, customer service, our standard metric is what we call on time case completion. That's the percentage of cases or tickets that are completed on time. And on time means、uh, relative to customers' reasonable expectations. So, if we have a policy to turn around, Quotes in simple quotes in an hour, complex quotes in three hours, to process orders in an hour, and to resolve simple issues in two hours, complex issues in four hours. Let's say, what we would do is timestamp every ticket on the way in, timestamp it on the way out, and calculate the percentage of cases、uh, completed on or before time, and that's what we call on-time case completion. So that's the only thing that we measure customer service on, and we look to get every customer service team that we're working with to ninety plus percent on time case, case completion as fast as possible. And for those of you who have a man- manufacturing background, you'll recognise immediately that that's very similar to DIFOT delivery in time on full, which is the the primary measurement in production environments.、Uh, for promotions, the job of promotions is to keep salespeople's queues full, so we measure queue size as a percentage of optimal. So you know, an inside salesperson, and and we're talking primarily about inside here rather than outside. You can ask me about outside if you like. But an in, a typical inside salesperson will, in order to stay busy, need to sit on a queue of about eighty sales opportunities at all times. And, and if they if they close about ten a day, meaning you know maybe win one and lose nine, or win two lose eight. If they close ten a day, that means that those ten need to be replenished every day to maintain. The queue size of of eighty. So where where promotions is concerned, we just measure the average queue size to make sure those queues are full and to make sure promotions is subordinating effectively to sales. And then where sales is concerned, it's it's revenue per call slot. So if a、uh, if your salespeople have the capacity to have about twenty meaningful selling conversations a day, what we want to know is how much revenue or or how much contribution margin. Uh, is probably slightly more meaningful. Is being generated per call slot, and we want to do whatever we can do in order to increase that number. You know, squeeze more call slots into the day, add more salespeople, I guess, increase their efficacy so that win more, or, or maybe inc- improve the quality of sales opportunities so they become more effective. But they're the th- they're the three things that we would measure, and pretty much the only three things we measure, unless something starts to go wrong, in which case we may take some start to take some te- temporary measurements for simply diagnostic purposes. Well, you mentioned outside sales. What would that look like? So the the question with all of our with all the organisations we talk to, we have a sort of a come to Jesus moment where we ask them to what extent is outside sales really critical, and everyone thinks it's really critical, but then when we ask our clients. You know whether they whether they value meeting face to face with salespeople when they're purchasing stuff. In most cases, in almost every case, the answer is no. So we have in business this weird double standard where we we don't want to meet with anyone else's sales folks face to face, but we assume that everybody else wants to meet with ours. I think if you're if you're in an engineer to order environment, selling something complex or expensive, you know, management accounting. Services, legal services, custom software development, things like that, where the decision making, where the decision is a complex one, then it's probably critical to be face to face, at least for you know one or two conversations in the overall sales engagement. 
if you're selling something that an, if you're selling some product or service where where it's easier for customers to make objective purchasing decisions it's probably not necessary to be face to face and if you do insist on being face to face you may end up discovering that you have fewer selling conversations than you could could have otherwise had and also that your sales people are significantly less efficient than they could be if they were inside because of course a person in the field can have about four selling conversations a day whereas a person inside can easily have 20 so there's a tax when you when you put them in the field there's a huge tax on their productivity you know they can they can operate at only one fifth the rate that they could operate at inside. You go into great detail about this in your book, and I know our our listeners may not have read your book yet. I'm going to make sure I put that information on my show notes page. What's the number one thing you want somebody to do after they finish reading your book? Well, the easy answer is on on the book also includes access to a video short course. So go and subscribe to that short course is the glib answer. I think that the book actually, in part two of the book, so I, I, I split the book into two parts. Part one is the theory, which is really what we're discussing here. And then part two consists of kind of an implement, implementation plan. It walks you through the process of, of planning. And, and I think what's likely to happen is most people are going to you know, read both parts and then make a decision. I would, I would say that what I would like people to do is to actually go back and follow the steps in part two because if we get called in to work with an organization, that's exactly what we do. You know, the steps that are described in part two, it's, it's not just an author trying to fill up pages. That's exactly what our game plan is, is if we go, go in and work with an organization. So the first, you know, the first couple of steps would be do the time and motion study on your existing sales team that I referenced before. So you know exactly the nature and the volume of the activities that are being performed currently. And then the second step is to is to, you know, maybe put all those activities on post-it notes, you know, draw some boxes on a whiteboard that contain the titles of the roles that you're toying with, and then move those post-it notes around between roles, playing with with what you believe is the optimal division of responsibilities. If you're a small organization like yours, and you have to make trade-offs, then what you want to think is, well, which role, you know, if we can only have one or two specialists which roles, if we choose to, you know, which, which folks, if we choose to make them specialists, will have the biggest impact on our rate of growth or our profitability? And in a business like yours, that's almost certainly going to be salespeople. So if you do have to have some folks multitasking, as you suggested, maybe the case earlier, you want to make sure the, the you, you want to start by just determining who are the folks who absolutely will not be multitasking. And that's generally the folks who are going to be having selling conversations. Well, Justin, earlier you mentioned that the way the sales department was compensated wasn't the best way either. So what should that look like? <laughs> okay. So this will, uh, this will generate some hate mail. <laughs> but well, I'll make sure to put your email on there so it goes directly to you and not me. How about that? Yeah. I think that the way that salespeople are traditionally compensated probably makes sense in the context of the traditional approach to the design of the sales function. So tra- traditionally, particularly in the U.S., salespeople were essentially retained as what what you, what we would tend to call manufacturers' reps today. They they weren't employees in the true sense of the word. They were kind of like semi-independent agents, and they got compensated as such. And to the extent that your salespeople are uh, independent agents, it absolutely makes sense to compensate them like independent agents. 
But the problem that we find with most organizations is it no longer makes sense for salespeople to be independent agents. So we've we've tried to turn them into employees, but they're still only kind of half employees. Um, they still think they're independent and management's not sure whether they are or not. And as a consequence, we pay them a bit of salary and then we pay them a bit of piece rate pay as well. And it's a mess. I think that ultimately folks need to either be independent or they need to be part of the team and there's no middle ground. You either march to the beat of your own drum or you march to the beat of a team drum. There is no third drum or the, the, the individuals do not have the ability to meet to march to two drum beats simultaneously. It's impractical in practice and uh, mathematically indefensible. You can really only optimize for one parameter. So our advice is make a choice. If you want your salespeople to be independent agents, make them independent agents, pay them commission. Uh, in other words, make them manufacturers reps. If you if you don't, if that doesn't make sense, then turn them into proper employees, insist that they march to the beat of the company drum and pay them salaries. I can just hear people listening to that and thinking that the incentive is now taken away in sales. What do you say to that? Well, the, 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 you, could, you could make the same case for every other person in your organization. If you employ a payroll clerk, what's the incentive for them to process payroll every week? That makes sense. Again, it's a different way of thinking because we've always done it a certain way. So, so if, if I am, here's the way I think about it. If I employed a salesperson, it would be, it would be my expectation that they would sell. And there would be kind of a, a range that I would expect them to perform within. And, and I would expect them to have a ramp-up period. But after the ramp-up period, I would expect them to be performing within an allowable range. And that would not be optional. And by not optional, what I mean is if they were below that range, they would not have a job after the you know, ramp-up period. So they, then either there might be some sort of um, additional training provided and some uh, counseling. But ultimately, if they didn't perform to whatever the required level is, they wouldn't have a job. So the, the big problem, I, one of the big problems I have with, with commission pay is that you give salespeople freedom that I don't want to give salespeople. I mean, if you work for me, my expect, I don't want selling to be optional. It's mandatory. So if, if, if I'm going to employ a salesperson, I'm prepared to put my money where my mouth is and gamble on a person. And if that person fails, then they leave. I have no interest in having people living in kind of purgatory where they're underperforming, but they're allowed to get away with it because they're living on less than the poverty line. It, it makes no sense whatsoever. And, if, and we wouldn't try and run any other part of our organization like that because we're smart enough to know we'd screw it up. We wouldn't do it in production. We wouldn't do it in marketing. We wouldn't do it in finance. We wouldn't do it in any other part of the organization. We only have folks earning this weird mix of salary and piece rate pay in sales because of inertia, because in the past, salespeople were, in, were essentially manufacturers reps, and we've kind of half moved them inside, and we haven't stopped to think how you know, ridiculous it is to have um, sales folks who are conflicted between being independent and being part of the team. Justin, I think you're going to change the way a lot of people think about their sales departments for the better. I have to ask, how did you come up with this idea? In increments. <laughs> Not all at once, just a little at a time. Yeah, I'd love to say I was like, uh, uh, what was his name? The, uh, the, fisc the head of the um, 
Finn um, Greenspan. I'd love to say I was in the bath and I just thought it up. No, in increments. I mean, I, I came from a sales environment. At one point, I ran a team of 100 salespeople on basically 100% commission. We paid uh, we paid a salary, but really it was an advance against commission. Our folks were on 100% commission. And to maintain a team of 100, we had to recruit about 450 new salespeople each year to cope, you know, to, to replace the ones who left. And now some of the folks on the team earned big money. You know, some of the, there were, we had a couple of people who earned quarter of a million dollars a year. And that was 25, 30 years ago, back when quarter of a million dollars was actually a lot of money. So that was my background. I le- th- that was in the insurance industry. I left the ins- insurance industry and became the CEO of a startup. And we didn't have the kind of margins that were necessary to maintain that kind of sales outfit. And also after doing it for a number of years, I had personally lost the appetite for trying to manage in that kind of environment. So in, in this startup, myself and the, the other partner, uh, you know, my other partner started to run experiments. Neither of us were really interested in continuing, you know, that approach to sales. Um, we started off by looking for ways to make sales more productive and by figuring out a way to generate large volumes of sales opportunities at scale. And then we discovered that when we generated opportunities at scale, and we did this back then by running public events. And in one particular year, I remember we had 45,000 people attend public events. So we generated a ton of sales opportunities. And what we discovered when we generated opportunities at scale, salespeople's performance only increased incrementally. So somebody who was, previ- who was previously earning 60K would go up from 60K to 75k in spite of the fact that we'd increased the flow of sales opportunities by 40 or 50 times. So we discovered we discovered that salespeople's, you know, personalities or whatever was imposing this kind of ceiling on their earnings, which made no sense to us because we thought that salespeople were predictably selfish creatures who would automatically pursue the the dollar wherever it led them. So you know, we were frustrated to discover that salespeople didn't like money as much as we thought they did, but we were convinced that we still liked money. So what we said is, look, we'll pay you a really good salary and we'll queue up we'll queue up activities in your calendar for you. And salespeople thought that was a pretty good deal because they were happy to get rid of the variability associated and the risk associated with variable pay. Uh, we paid them really good salaries and we we packed their calendars with a- activities. I remember in this business at one point, we had a number of offices in each capital city and we had queues of people sitting in reception. If you imagine a doctor's office, that's what it looked like. And, you know, we were deliberately queuing people up. We double booked um, salespeople uh, to compensate for no-shows and uh, folks would file in and out of the salesperson's office and the salesperson would do a presentation, ask them at the end of it if they want to buy. And if not, if, if they did, they'd, you know, settle up at reception and the next person would be wheeled in. What we discovered there was that to operate in an environment like that, salespeople only wanted incrementally more. They were happy earning incrementally more, but but the design of that environment enabled us to earn almost an, an order of magnitude more than we were in the old environment. So, you know, the economics, I guess, led us to that model. Well, let me ask, what is the average of the people that you've worked with, the companies that you've worked with, the before and after, the percentage of revenue that they've been able to realize by changing their way of thinking about the sales process. So I'm leery of averages. Um, Fair enough. You've, I guess you've all heard that one about the chap with one hand in ice water and one hand in boiling water, and on average, he's warm. <laughs> <laughs> the, the range is fairly significant. 
So we'll have some organizations who do nothing, achieve basically nothing. And I talked about why before. And we have other organizations that achieve transformations that are so profound, it's almost unbelievable. I'm thinking of one organization that in a three-year period, 10 times their revenues. But both of those are outliers. If I had to, if I had to pick like a median, I would say that a typical client of ours, that, or, or not even a client, a follower of ours, somebody who reads the book and does a good job of implementing, can consistently generate about a 20% year-on-year growth. Now, that doesn't sound exciting, but it's important to remember that most of the organizations we work with are larger. So if you're talking about a $20 million business generating 20% year-on-year growth, that's significant to the business, but also there are operational reasons why it's impractical to grow faster than that. So, you know, small business folks want to hear stories where someone's grown by 300% a month or something, but outside of small business, practically that doesn't happen because the constraint shifts someplace else. Um, It shifts to engineering or operations or uh, capital sometimes. You know, growing consumes cash at a scary rate. So I think for, I mean, if it's a micro business, uh, you, you know, with 10 employees or something, then sure, you can grow very, very fast. And, and there's plenty of plenty of cases of that. I, I think there's some video case studies on my blog. I interviewed a, a, an organization just recently that's on the small size, like less than 20 people. And I think that they have grown for at 30% a year for three consecutive years, which has resulted in them doubling the size of the business. I think maybe more than that. Uh, but I would say a realistic expectation, considering that you're going to have to scale the rest of the organization at the same time, you know, manufacturing, production, engineering, whatever the case is, is a, is a 20% year-on-year growth. Well, I will say that when I was reading the book, a lot of the questions that I had about why things weren't working, you did a great job of explaining why, and then also in part two, how to fix that. I want to recommend to everybody in the Scaling Up Nation that you do pick up a copy of Justin's book. I'll make sure to have that on my notes page. Justin, do you mind answering a couple of lightning round questions for us? Happy to. All right. So what are the last three books that you've read? So I looked them up on Amazon. Uh, the most recent book is Rational Optimist by Matt Ridley. So he's kind of a, he's a historian who uh, has an interesting take on history. Um, and and it's, it's pertinent to this discussion because he focuses on the profound impact that division of labor has had through history. And he reaches some controversial conclusions. So for those people who are optimists and rational, it's, it's, I would definitely recommend uh, that, that book and, and, and any of Matt Ridley's books. Prior to that, I read The Buy Side, which is a Wolf of Wall Street style romp through um, uh, stockbroking, I guess, written by a chap called Tony Duff, who was a buy-side trader who lived a wild lifestyle. I, pro- I probably wouldn't like to read this book normally, but it, it is just incredibly well-written. The, the, the Tony Duff is just an amazing writer. I, I think the story, was, the story was interesting and fun and a little bit salacious, but it's worth reading just because the, the guy's a crazy good writer. And prior to that, I read American Kingpin, which is Nick Bolton's account of the Ross Ilbright story, the, the founder of Silk Road. So they're the last three. Excellent. So last question, if you could talk to anybody throughout history, who would it be and why? This one stumped me. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I, would, I would love to talk to um, the, what's his name, um, 
the chap who worked on the the project to decipher the uh, the German code machines, the Enigma, Alan Turing. Uh, but I but I don't think I have I would have the intellect to have a meaningful conversation with Alan Turing. So I'd probably settle for Winston Churchill. Oh, Winston Churchill certainly isn't settling. That would be an incredible conversation. So I think that's a great <laughs> answer. Didn't have the same intellect as Alan Turing. I mean, Alan Turing was just a freak of Einsteinian proportions, but but I mean, nobody would say that Winston Churchill wasn't smart. He certainly was an incredible leader. So if I was to have dinner with someone dead, you know, that that would be a that would be a fascinating dinner conversation. Excellent. Well, this has been a great treat for me to to have you on the show. Uh, I can't tell you how much you sparked in ideas and things that I need to correct in my company. And it was because you took the time to write the book. I want to thank you for that. And I want to encourage everybody in the Scaling Up Nation to read the book because I think you're going to find some things that you can do a lot better too. Any last words you want to give to the Scaling Up Nation? No, it's been a pleasure to be uh, a pleasure to be interviewed. I I love getting the word out, and I hope folks will go out and uh, go out and read the book. I mean, it may not it may not be the right thing at the right time for your organization, but it's going to make you think about sales, and and it may even add some insights to the to the design of the organization as a whole. It's something I like to think about a lot, and I I think there's value there for folks. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. You're welcome, Trace. How interesting is that? I mean, I never thought that there was any other way to set up a sales department than how we traditionally do it. And if you want more sales, you just simply hire more salespeople. But he says, no, there's a, there's a better way to do that. There's a better mousetrap out there. So folks, uh, the book is called The Machine. And I really enjoyed reading it. We're actually trying to do some of those things in our company right now. So if you want the book, go to scalinguph2o.com forward slash sales book, and that will take you to an affiliate link of mine so you can get Justin's book. And I tell you what, this is such a, this was such a radical concept to me. I'm curious to hear what you have to say about it. So if you have an opinion, go ahead and send me an email, uh, go on my show notes page and uh, send back a question to me and, and just let me know what you thought of it. Cause I, I was just blown away with that concept. I, I had never thought from that perspective before. Well, let's get into a couple of questions. So the first one is, Trace, thanks for sharing all the items that were in your test kit. Besides what you mentioned, what is your favorite tool, the one that you can't service without? And I actually don't think I mentioned that. If I remember, I was doing that show at uh, my home office, so I wasn't at the actual office, so I wasn't able to look in my test kit. And actually, this wouldn't have been in my test kit, so maybe that's why I didn't think of it. But the tool that I cannot live without when I service is my Leatherman. It's a multi-tool, had one for years. All the ones I've had have been guaranteed for life. 
I've had some that have rusted a little bit or some where the screwdrivers have broken off or a knife has broken off and I've sent that sucker back in and they've sent me a brand new one. Now, a lot of times they were so old, they didn't have that model. So they sent me the most comparative model. So I've actually got mine upgraded a couple of times because they stand behind their products so much. Now, this isn't a commercial for Leatherman, but I tell you, if you ever had to run back and forth to your truck to get a screwdriver or a knife or a set of pliers, or uh, cutters or whatever, you don't have to do that if you're wearing that on your belt. And I have to say that it's a very close second, my flashlight. I don't know what it is, but when I put my flashlight on things, I start thinking differently. So uh, I don't know if that's from watching detective shows when I was growing up, but whenever a detective, a detective walked in the room, he would get his flashlight out and he would start looking at things and that's when he would start finding clues. Well, folks, that's exactly what I do. Whenever I go to a system, I get my flashlight out and I start tracking down things to make sure that I see everything in that system and I make sure I know everything that's attached to it. So, uh, and of course the flashlight's good because a lot of times we have very stinky light in the uh, mechanical room. So that allows us to see things. Oh, and by the way, uh, when I had that test kit episode, I mentioned uh, a light that one of the guys here at Blackmore Enterprises found that we've been using for a while. It's just a, a sort of a very inexpensive light. And what we've done, we've put it inside our test kit. It has a USB charger on it. And it, the reason we like it, it's, it's not the, the best quality in the world, but the reason that it's so nice is it folds up really small so it doesn't take up a lot of real estate in the test kit. And then you can actually prop that open and it's got like four levels that you can uh, extend it out on. And then you've got good quality light to run your tests. Now, as far as the, the light, it's, this is why I think it's really cool. It's a 6,500 Kelvin bulb. Now, for those of you that have no idea what I'm talking about, well, that's, that's the spectrum that it puts out. So that mirrors sunlight. And that's good for running tests because it's going to give you the best light to take the perspective of those tests. So if you're interested in that, scaling up H2O forward slash light. And again, it's an inexpensive light, so that might help. But the, the question was, what can I live without? And it's a toss-up. It's the it's probably the Leatherman, but then again, it might be the flashlight too. So I'll, I'll answer those with that. Next question is, on several corrosion coupons that I take out of the system, the steel has copper on it. Where is this coming from? Well, this is actually a lead-in that I'm going to do for my question and answer show that's coming up next. And we're going to talk about the galvanic series because that's what's going on here. Metals are either anodic or cathodic. And what's happening is the copper ions are going on to the steel and when you put the coupons in, you've got one copper and one steel. When you take them out, you've got what looks like two copper coupons. So I'm going to do a whole segment on the question, on this question, because I've gotten several about the Galvanic series. So I'm not going to go into why so much on this question. I'm simply going to answer it. You're putting the coupons in the wrong order. So put your steel coupon in first 
followed by your copper coupon and you shouldn't have that problem. And hopefully that will solve it for you. And then tune into a later show and I'll tell you exactly why that happens. And I'm going to talk about how to read the Galvanic series because a lot of us know that there's a Galvanic series out there, but we don't know how to use it in, a, in our regular water treatment practice. I'm going to make sure with this show, you know how to do that. So I hope that gets you started with a solution and then you'll know why later. Folks, this show has been a lot of fun for me to put on. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you take some of the things you learn to make yourself a little bit better tomorrow than you were today. And I look forward to joining you again on Scaling Up.